I said, we're not going to take uh, our time with our normal study of 1 Peter today. We have the great responsibility, the great joy that is ours this morning of coming to the table of the Lord. And the reason that we do that is we are obeying the Lord Jesus Christ. He told us to do this in remembrance of Him. And so as we come to the Lord's table today, we're remembering Him by proclaiming His death as we eat and drink together until He comes again. And in preparation for that, that incredible joy, in, in preparation for that incredible privilege and responsibility that is ours, I would like us to turn to the eternal Word of the eternal God this morning as we focus our hearts and as we, we focus our minds. I want to direct your attention to the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John and chapter 6. And just briefly, I, I don't want to take a long time today. I want to give us time to, to allow the the observance of the Lord's table to, to sit with us. But I do want to direct your attention briefly to the Gospel of John and John chapter 6. And there is a particular question that I want to pose for you that Jesus actually poses to those who are listening to Him as He preaches a sermon, the sermon that He preaches in John chapter 6, we could title the living bread or the bread of life. And Jesus poses a question very near the end of that sermon that I'd like to pose to us this morning as well. That question comes to us in John chapter 6 and verse 61. John chapter 6 and verse 61. And we read, Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Jesus knew what was in the heart of these who were grumbling, who were, they they were kind of, uh, 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 there there was a roar of grumble among them. Uh, they, they, They were unsettled about what he had been saying, about what he had been teaching, about what he had been preaching, and there was sort of this grumbling going on around them. And he asked the question, are you offended at this, does this offend you? This is a quite a long chapter, but it's an important chapter when it comes to understanding the grace of our salvation. And Jesus asks those who have been following him a very direct question. He says, are you offended at this? Or put another way, does this cause you to stumble? Now, the question that we have to ask in light of that question is, What might they be stumbling over? What might cause them to stumble? What might cause them offense? Keep your finger there in John chapter 6 and just turn over with me quickly, if you will, to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And look at verse 18. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. 
For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to those of us, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discerning of the, the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not go, know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Now look at this. Verse 22. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. We have to ask the question, what might be the cause of this stumbling? What might these people who have been listening to Jesus preach this sermon? Now listen, this is Jesus. I know we call Charles Spurgeon the prince of preachers. And if he's the prince, then Jesus is the king of preachers, right? They're listening to Jesus, the king of preachers, and they've got something to complain about. They've got something to grumble over. There's there's some offense, there's some cause for stumbling in this sermon that Jesus preached. What could it be? There has been a great crowd following Jesus. Very large crowd that says that several times at the beginning of John chapter 6. Thousands really had been following Jesus. He had fed this crowd. He had been healing the sick of this crowd. But they were following him in large measure because they were really getting caught up in these things. They were getting meals and they were getting heals, right? They were being healed and they were getting fed. And it was quite the sight, I'm sure, as the Lord Jesus Christ, in an act of absolute compassion, looked at them as those who needed to be fed and as those who needed to be healed. Now, by the time we get on here in John chapter 6, I'm just trying to summarize everything and pull it all close together. We're not spending a whole lot of time in the details. But by the time we get on here in the latter parts of John chapter 6, Jesus is now back over into this little town called Capernaum. It's this little town by the Sea of Galilee. It's a a fishing village, really, a fishing town by the Sea of Galilee. Galilee. He had been across the other side of the sea as he went there for a time of respite. And when he went there, the crowds came and sought him out there. But now here in the latter parts of John chapter six, he left that side of the sea, comes back to the town of Capernaum, and he is in the synagogue there teaching. Uh, Just uh, maybe five or six years ago, Joni and I were there in that synagogue there in Capernaum. It's, it's quite a large structure, certainly able to house hundreds of people, not to mention those who were able to gather in and listening in through the, the open windows on the outside. He's in the synagogue there and he is teaching. Now the audience was made up of those John identifies as the Jews. Part of the audience was made up by the Jews. The Jews were the the religious leaders. They were the ones who were always like like little dogs nipping at the heels of Jesus. They were always there, yip, 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 trying to nip at his heels, just bothersome, 
a, a pain in the neck, if you will. They were just always there trying to catch Jesus, trying to scheme to catch him in his words. And they, they were never far from Jesus. They were always there. They were the Jews. But then there were also those whom John identifies as his disciples. Now, immediately, when you think of his disciples, you probably, like me, think of the 12 who would become, uh, or the 11, anyway, who would become apostles. But when John uses this term, disciples, he's not just referring to the 11, but rather he is referring to all of those who had been following Jesus. Or maybe I could say they were listening. They had been listening to Jesus. They were following him around wherever he had gone. They, 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 they ate the bread that he had you know, multiplied. They ate the fish that he had multiplied. They saw some of the miracles that he did. They were able to listen in to his teaching. They were the listeners. And then there were those disciples who were actually those who were committed to him. Now on this day, Jesus was preaching to them in the synagogue, in Capernaum, this sermon called the Bread of Life. The Bread of Life. And this was a hard sermon. Not necessarily because of the way in which, you know, you might say, well, somebody preached this hard sermon because they were, they were hollering, they were, they were raising their voice, and it, they were stomping, and they were spitting, and they were snotting, and that's a hard, but not this. This was a hard sermon because of the content, not because of the way in which Jesus delivered it, because of what, but because of what he had to say. The teaching of Jesus was hard, so hard that we read in John chapter 6 and verse 66 that many of his disciples, those who had been following him, those are the listeners, many of the listeners turned back. And walk with him no more. What happened? What happened that would cause those who had been following Jesus? And listen, they would go, if it demanded that they would, they would walk a long way to the other side of the sea. Or even maybe take a boat to the other side of the sea. If it demanded that they free up their schedule. They were following Jesus wherever he went throughout that region of Galilee. All of a sudden they said, that's it. No more. What would cause them to do that? What would cause them to this point to turn around and follow Jesus no more? What happened? Well, the whole thing, as I said, began on the other side of the sea when Jesus had gone away and and a large crowd had sought him out. As I said, he took compassion on them. He healed them and he provided them with food when there was none. Thousands upon thousands were fed the day or so before what happens here in Capernaum. But the point wasn't about the bread that they were fed that day. The point was their need of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says to them, they they were following him because they had their bellies filled. But the reason that they were following him is not just because they had their bellies filled. The reason that they were following him is because they were hungry. They were hungry. They had their bellies filled, but now they're hungry again. And that's when Jesus, that's when everything began to go south. Jesus said, 
do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Do not, he says, this is when all, everything begins to go south. Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. Now, this is not a statement. Verse 27 is not a statement about not working. But rather, it is a statement that the ultimate motivation for our lives must be found in the spiritual realm and not simply the physical realm, not simply the, 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 the material realm. I heard Alistair Begg in a sermon say this, any attempts to, fu- to fill the spiritual vacuum of our human existence with physical or material things will end ultimately in despair. And all of us can right there say, amen. Any attempts to, fu- to fill the spiritual vacuum of our lives with purely material, purely temporal things will ultimately uh, lead us to or end up with despair. Jesus is calling them to something greater. He's calling them to that which is eternal. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. And they respond, okay, what must we do to work, to do the works of God? They say, verse 28, okay, we're ready to do the works of God. What do we have to do? And you can just hear that interchange taking place between Jesus and this crowd. They're willing to jump through the hoops. They're ready to sign on the dotted line, as it were. Where do we sign? Where do we register? We're in. And so he tells them, I'll tell you what the work of God is. The work of God is that you believe, verse 29, you believe in him whom he has sent. Now what you need to understand is that there's no mystery here. Jesus is not talking in code language. He's very openly calling them to believe in Him. They know. They know that. And so they respond and say, on what basis do you tell us that? What are your credentials? Show us a sign. What did Paul say? The Jews demand a what? A sign. Show us a sign. Show us your credentials. Don't matter that they were just in a barren place and the Lord Jesus Christ took a few loaves and some fish and multiplied it to feed thousands with 12 baskets full left over. Never mind that. They say, but isn't it interesting? Moses gave us manna. What are you going to give us? To which Jesus said, Moses didn't give that to you. Oh no, now they're going to have a problem. Because he just attacked the heart of their religious pride. Moses didn't give that to you, but my father gave. That manna was sent down from my father. And then what did he just say? He said, believe in him who was sent down from the father. He's talking to them about the necessity of eternal life. Not just bread, not just manna, but eternal life. He's talking to them about salvation. And that's the problem. That's the rub. 
What we have here in John chapter 6 is a sermon that Jesus preaches in Capernaum, the bread of life. And in this sermon, he calls his hearers to pursue eternal life, which can only ever be found in him. Now, if you read through this sermon, we're not going to read through all of it today, but if you maybe later this afternoon, just read the entire sermon, you'll notice a lot of repetition happening. He repeats the same things several times in different ways. As I said, we won't take time to explore that, but just notice how the same subjects keep coming up in this sermon. But what I want to do this morning is identify at least five truths or five subjects that he keeps repeating, which ultimately lead them, lead those who have been listeners to decide they're not going to walk with him anymore. These are the five truths over which they stumbled. Five truths that led them to be offended. And I want to ask you the question at the end today, are you also offended? Are you also offended? What are the five truths? One, I'll just give you a word for each one. Sufficiency. They stumbled over sufficiency. Two, simplicity. They stumbled over simplicity. Three, sovereignty. They stumbled over sovereignty. Four, security. They stumbled over security. Five, sentence. They stumbled over The sentence. So the sufficiency, simplicity, sovereignty, security, and sentence. And as I said, you'll see this just happening throughout the whole sermon. And the the problem, as I said, really begins at the very beginning. And I want you to see what he says to them. They are working hard at keeping up with Jesus in order to have their bellies filled and their sicknesses healed. And nobody could really blame them for that. We wouldn't blame them for that. We would be right there with them as well. But Jesus sees what they do not see. He saw that they had seen the miracle that he did. What? The the, the bread and the, the, the loaves and the fish. He saw that they saw the miracle that he did, but he knew they saw it without seeing the significance. One commentator said it this way. Just listen to this. See if you can wrap your mind around this. He said, instead of seeing in the bread the sign, they saw in the sign merely the bread. Instead of seeing in the sign, uh, instead of seeing in the bread the sign, They saw in the sign merely the bread. And so Jesus gets right to the point as he addresses this issue of sufficiency. You are laboring for food. And you're only going to get hungry again. It's like he's saying you're wasting your time. You ought to be laboring for that which will satisfy you forever. There's the note of sufficiency. The sufficiency of this eternal life. Or can I say it this way? The sufficiency of this salvation of which he's speaking. But listen, it's not found. This sufficiency is not found in many places. It's only found in one place. Or maybe I should say it better. It's only found in one person. The Father has already attested to that. 
Look at verse 27. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. Why? For on Him God the Father has set His seal. God the Father has already given His attestation to the sufficiency of the Son. Remember, Paul said, It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For the Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. That's it. We preach the gospel. He would go on later to tell us that the gospel in 1 Corinthians 15 is Christ crucified, dead, buried, and rose again just like the scriptures say. It wasn't Moses, as I said, who gave the bread out of heaven. He said the Father gave the bread. And not only did the Father give that manna, but the Father, verse 29, verse 39, the Father from heaven sent the Son. It is only the Lord Jesus Christ who can quench this spiritual thirst and satisfy this spiritual hunger of our soul. He is completely and utterly sufficient. And there are no supplements. There's no room for anything else to add. There's no room for your contribution. And what happens is, as Jesus begins to pile these statements on, this becomes tremendously offensive to human pride. Because you're saying... That the only way to address my eternal need of eternal life is found outside of myself, outside of my contribution, outside of what I add. And he says, that's right. He moves on from talking about the sufficiency to then taking a word about This incredible simplicity. The simplicity of this salvation of which Jesus spoke. And this is communicated, this simplicity is communicated by a series of of developing, what I'll call them developing participles. A series of developing designations or descriptions of what it means to follow Christ. And he uses it in these four ways. He, he talks first about coming to Christ. And then he talks about looking to Christ. And then he talks about believing in Christ. And then he talks about feeding on Christ. Look, look at this in verse 35, what he says. Jesus said to them, I am, note that sufficiency, I am the bread of life. Whoever, look, comes to me, shall not hunger. Verse 37. All the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes I will will never cast out. Look at verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Verse 45. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. He says the same thing down in verse 65. What he's doing here is he's talking about the simplicity. He's just said you can't add anything. You can't supplement. You can't contribute. Rather, it's this wonderfully simple truth of coming 
And, and that word is just a word that means to approach. Like a child approaches his father. I mean, like a puppy approaches his owner. Just coming. But not only does he say coming, then he says looking. Verse 40. Look at verse 40. This is the will of my father that everyone who looks, everyone who is looking on the sun. That word look is the word from which we get the word that means to consider with a critical eye. Not only are they coming, but they're looking with a critical eye. They're examining the details. Everyone who comes to me, but not just comes to me, everyone who looks to me, examines who I am. And then he doesn't, he doesn't leave it there. He doesn't just say coming and looking, but he says, and believes, is believing over and over and over again. Look at verse 35. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Right? This is verse 40. This is the will of the Father that everyone who looks on the Son and believes. It's that idea of of, of relying on. And this belief, this faith as we would call it, this trust, this reliance has a, a mental aspect in which you, you grasp some objective truth and it has a, an emotional aspect in which you open your heart, but then there's this volitional aspect in which you lower yourself, you bow yourself, you surrender yourself, you yield yourself, you humble yourself before this truth. And so he says, you come and you look and then you believe. But then what? Look down in verse 47. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die I am the living bread that came down from the Father. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. And the Jews disputed among themselves, saying, How could this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said, Truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day for my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink what is he talking about he's not talking about a communion service he's not talking about cannibalism or something like that look at verse 56 whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and i in him what is he talking about come see or look believe and appropriate. It's coming. Coming and seeing. With a critical eye. Understanding something about this Christ. And believing. Relying on Him. Mentally. Emotionally. Volitionally. And then taking out. And partaking of Him. It's simple. This is simple. This is, this is the simplicity of this salvation. To which He's talking. Which He's speaking here. 
It means to appropriate, to take unto oneself. Come, look, believe, and partake. He's speaking here of being united with Christ, abiding in Him, and Him in you, without any contribution from yourself. Now these are terms, if you're hearing me say this, you're, hopefully you're thinking, these are terms, Pastor Joe, these are terms that seem to indicate, that seem to be speaking of the responsibility. There is a responsibility to come, to look, to believe, and to eat, to feed to partake, it's, it's a, what we could call a human responsibility for those who would come to eternal life. Sufficiency, simplicity, and then sovereignty. You see, when you talk about this issue of human responsibility, things that have to be uh, appropriated Someone might say and maybe think that salvation is somehow earned, but what you would understand in the Scripture is that salvation is never earned. It is always bestowed. A person cannot be saved unless they come to Christ. A person cannot be saved unless they they look to Christ. A person cannot be saved unless they believe Christ. A person cannot be saved unless they appropriate the substitutionary sacrificial death of Christ. But now, this gets sticky for a lot of people because you can't come unless it's been given to you. You didn't come to Christ because you thought it was a good idea. You see, what the Lord Jesus explains to us is that apart from grace, you and I will remain content in our sins. We will remain content in our discontentment. And what does He do? In order to nail this down, He he says, No man can come to Me unless it's been granted by My Father in Heaven, verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And then what does he do? He nails it down with a quote from Isaiah 54. Just a side note. He's in the synagogue. What happens in the synagogue? We know this from when Jesus was in the synagogue of Nazareth. There is a reading from the prophets. And no doubt, the the day that Jesus was there... So arranged by God the Father. The day that Jesus was there, the scroll is open to the point where they would be reading Isaiah 54, which says, and they will all be taught by God. And they will all be taught by God. And what Jesus does is He applies this, what's happening here in Capernaum, He applies this to what the prophet Isaiah was speaking about, When he wrote in Isaiah 54, he anchors his teaching in the Word of God. The teaching of God is, listen, the work of God to draw men and women to Christ. Well, who is taught by God? 
Who is taught by God? Keep reading. Verse 45, they will all be taught by God. That's the quote. Now, the application, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Who is taught by God? Everyone who what? Comes to Christ. So that the drawing of what he speaks in verse 44 is the ministry of God the Father, I would say, through the Holy Spirit in the Word. And he wants us to see. He wants us to understand that there is one who is working whenever you see someone coming and looking and believing and feeding That is a sure indication that they have been taught by the Father. And we just rejoice in that. You see, there's no problem between human responsibility, what I'm calling the simplicity of this salvation, and divine sovereignty, the sovereignty of this salvation. We ought not to make an issue here where there is no issue. Why? Because he says, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. You cannot make a contribution. You can't supplement. You can't add anything. The words, he says, that I have spoken to you, the words that I have spoken are spirit and life, and you don't take any credit. Why? Because the flesh is no help at all. The flesh is no profit at all. And you can imagine, maybe in yourself now, being there in that crowd that day, and and maybe there becomes a bit of a rumble. Maybe people start... Here's a good Dutch word for you. They start rooching around in their seat. You know what it means, a rooch, right? They start rooching around in their seats. They're a little uncomfortable. Sufficiency. Simplicity. Sovereignty. And then security. Verse 37. Look at verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes, I will never cast out. Verse 39. And this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Verse 40. And I will raise him up on the last day. There, there's a note of security here. You see, if, if, if we were only thinking of human supl- uh, responsibility, if we were only thinking of simplicity here, I don't think there could be any note of security. Because it would always come back to me. But because of the sovereignty of this simple salvation, we have a tremendous security. Why? Because it is the work of God. He is working, and because this salvation is rooted in the eternal Word of God, we have a security, a a certainty that if any man be in Christ, he is a new 
creature. Not if any man be in himself or be successful or be everything that you think he ought to be, but it's in Christ. I will raise him up. I will never cast him out. Christ, Christ, Christ as our security. Again, he's saying, you contribute nothing. And then what really seals the deal is the sentence. There, there's, there's, there's some offense at the sufficiency of this salvation. There's some offense at the simplicity. There's some offense at the sovereignty. It's building offense at the, at, 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 at the security. But, but, but the issue comes down to this, the sentence. And put into a question, what becomes of those who do not appropriate this, uh, appropriate this salvation? What becomes of those who do not appropriate this, this salvation? What becomes of them? And that's really the point, isn't it? Those who do not appropriate this, appropriate this salvation do not have eternal life. They have eternal lostness. That's the sentence. You come to Christ or you don't come at all. Right? You look to Christ. You don't look at all. You, 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 you believe in Christ. You don't believe at all. You, you partake of Christ or you don't partake at all. You're either in or you're out. And that's really the rub with them. They hear that and they can't continue because it is a blow to their pride. Jesus looks to the disciples as the, the, the disciples, those, those who are following him, those who understand who he is, and he asks the question, are you, are you going to go? Are you going to turn away as well? You, are you offended at this? And Peter answers, how could I be offended? This is the truth. You are the truth. I could never be offended. Would you leave? Would you abandon Christ as the only hope of eternal salvation? You could add nothing to Him. You bring nothing for Him. Would you say on that basis, if I can't come and add this experience, if I can't come and add this whatever, then I don't come at all. Or do you, like Peter and the disciples, say, where else am I going to go? Where else am I going to find eternal life? It's only Christ. I look at this and I wonder, how could they ever be offended at this? It's like, if you'll forgive my imagination, this 
perfect buffet presented. And it's everything. I mean, you got the mashed potatoes and gravy. You've got sweet corn. You've got crispy southern fried chicken. Right? You've got fried oysters and fried whatever else. You just fry something and put it there. It's all there. And it's just steaming, piping hot. And somebody looks to me and says, Hey, Joe, would you like some? Did I offend you? What? You didn't offend me at all. I will gladly receive that. And for those of you who are in Christ today, those of you who see Christ, those of you who want to come to Christ today and look to Him and believe Him and feed on Him, it's not an offense at all. It is your joy Because you don't have to add anything. You don't give anything. It's just all give. It's all grace, grace, grace upon grace. And so when I call you to come to the table today, the table of the Lord, that is the the table of remembrance, the table of memorial, You come gladly. Would you like to remember Christ today? Of course I want to remember Christ. Of course I want to proclaim the sufficiency of His death. The simplicity of His death. Of course I want to to proclaim the sovereignty of His death. I want to proclaim the security of His death. I want to proclaim the sentence of His death. His death for mine because He died. I live. And so I come to the table and I come joyfully because I see what is represented. I see in the, the bread and the juice the sign. The sign. It's Christ. 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 And if that's you today, dear brother or sister in Christ, I want to invite you to this table today. But if, you, if you're here and, and you're offended at this, this gospel, if you say, but oh, I, want to, I want to have just a little bit for me. Just a little reason for me. You can have 99.9%, but I want point whatever that is. One, I'm no mathematician. Point whatever else that is. I want that for me. Christ says, go your way. Go your way. Let's pray.